Is becoming a new manager really that hard? Is gossiping at work good for you? Is it okay to take meetings from a salon chair in the middle of the workday? These are the kinds of questions and hot topics we dive into every day on our hit newsletter, Girlboss Daily. What else can you expect? Dream job postings, A-plus career advice, and a few emojis, because we're fun like that. All delivered right to your inbox. Join 250,000 ambitious women and sign up at girlboss.com slash newsletter. That's girlboss.com slash newsletter. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Girlboss Radio. I'm your host, Avery. I'm the founder of Bloom, a workplace design consultancy, and a firm believer that work should work for all of us. Today, I'm joined by Claire and Erica, the best friends and business partners behind A Thing or Two, a hit podcast, newsletter, and membership-based content platform. The duo has developed a reputation as influential curators with a knack for spotting the next big thing when it's still a small thing. Claire and Erica met in 2002 as undergrads at the University of Chicago and followed each other to New York City. It was then in their early 20s when the concept for their first business of a kind was born. Maybe you've heard of it. It was a beloved e-commerce site that featured the work of 600 designers and makers. It was so popular that Bed Bath & Beyond acquired it in 2015, but then shut it down only a few years later. We talked de-influencing what really went down with Bed Bath & Beyond and why everyone should have a work wife. Let's get into it. Claire and Erica, welcome to Girlboss Radio. I am so excited to have this conversation with the both of you today. First and foremost, how are you feeling? Good. Excited to be here. You know, I'm having a 4 p.m. a 4 p.m. coffee, so I feel like I'm feeling medium risk-taking behavior. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I had a coffee earlier today and I also had a matcha. I am on my worst behavior. So I have so many questions for both of you. I am a solo founder. There's a lot of times where I'm just kind of sitting around thinking, damn, I really wish I did this with somebody else. So I'm excited just to like explore you two founding and building multiple businesses together, writing a book together. There's just so much that I want to dive into. But first, I want to like just go backwards a little bit because I think that a lot of conversations focus on where we're at now and not where we started. And I think there's a lot of folks that are at the beginning of their career or midway through and they feel like this is it for them or they feel really, really stuck. I think it's important for us to reflect back on that. So I guess we'll start with you, Claire. Like, where did your professional career begin? So after college, I went straight to grad school, which I wouldn't necessarily recommend, but I felt really unprepared to actually take a job because I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went to grad school for arts administration, which is basically the management business side of the arts. I worked for an art collection. I worked for an artist. When Eric and I started of a kind, my previous job had been working for a theater organization called Theater Communications Group. And I was ready to move on from that and really unsure where I wanted to go. And the thing that is hilarious to me now is I was 26 years old and I felt like I had already put so much time into that particular field of work that I couldn't possibly change career paths at that point. What I did was just decided to enter a different career path through the side door, which was Eric and I starting our own business together and becoming entrepreneurs. But yeah, it's really funny to look back on that and and realize I'm now 39 and it's still not too late to start a different career path if I want to. A hundred percent. I feel like there's so many folks that think that once you hit 30, 
it's all over for you. And I, I think that a big part of what we're exploring with this podcast is, you know, the various kind of career tracks of, of really, really impressive women. And it continues to remind me that there's so much nuance when it comes to our careers. And unfortunately, like people love putting women in boxes and we've torn those boxes up and we're like, or we've used them, we've built whole new things for ourselves. So Erica, I'm curious to hear a little bit about where you started. So when I was in college, I didn't really have a sense of what I wanted to do. And Claire and I went to University of Chicago together. And it's it's just not a career oriented place unless you want to go into finance and major in economics. And so the summer between my junior and senior year of college, I did this program called Road Trip Nation. Program's probably too serious a word for it or too like formal a word for it. But basically, two of my friends and I drove across the country from LA to New York interviewing people who had taken interesting career paths which I think relates a lot to what you were just saying, Avery, about seeing the different ways people are doing things. And so we booked the interviews ourselves and we're on this journey of trying to figure out what do I want to do and what are the things I don't even know exist that haven't been presented to me that I haven't encountered in my life. And one of the interviews was with Atusa Rubenstein, who was the editor-in-chief of Seventeen magazine at the time. And she really cemented for me that working in magazines was what I wanted to do. During that conversation and a conversation later when I interned at 17, I was like, okay, I'm going to do the risky thing and move to New York and get a job in magazines and did that and really loved it and worked in magazines at Details and Lucky for five years before we started Of A Kind. And then I think it just started becoming clear at that point how much that industry was changing and evolving and in ways that were less exciting to me. And it was really scary, though, to think that this was the vision I had. This was like what I wanted to do was on this track and felt really good about it until I didn't. And I think I was really lucky that Claire and I had this other idea that we were really excited to pursue because I could see myself having muddled through many, many years of trying to decide whether to stay or go or how to deal with it otherwise. Yeah. And I love what you said about just exploring the career tracks or things you can do for work that you're not even aware of. Was there any like careers that you came across in your conversations that you were like blown away that it existed as a job? Oh my gosh, so many. We interviewed the then chancellor of the New York City Public Schools. We interviewed, who do we interview? You did the master distiller from Jack Daniels, right? Something like that? Yes, the, the historian, the historian of the Jack Daniels distillery who has been there for like 30 years and is kind of exactly what you would expect him to be. We interviewed Julie Gilhart, who was the head buyer at Barney's at the time. Yeah, there were so many, I think even just in doing research for these interviews, it was fascinating to be like, oh, that is how an interest in education could play out. Or that's how an interest in fashion could play out. There's so many trajectories that this could go. We interviewed the head of marketing and brand at Paps Blue Ribbon. This was like during that time when PBR was just like hitting. It was the NBC's era. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. It is fascinating that we are asked about what we want to be when we grow up our entire lives. It's one of the few questions people ask kids. And I was reading Amina Harris interview recently about just how damaging that can be for kids to be forced to have to say and to like have to cement this at that age of four and five and 10 and over and over just being asked as if there is just one thing you choose to be and you do that forever. Right. So I want to talk to you a little bit about speaking of the beginning, where did you both meet? Where and how did this friendship start initially? 
I was a freshman and Erica was a sophomore and we got set up on a friend date by a mutual friend. And we just became really good friends in college and both moved to New York after school and had always like a, I don't want to say a unique kind of friendship, but maybe highly specific in that we really bonded intellectually and academically and just over interests that not a lot of our other friends shared. And we were the type of people who talked about ideas with each other a lot and talked about our careers a lot. And I think that all really helped when it came time to start a business. We both knew all of the minor characters in each other's workplaces. That was, you know, we just had a lot of visibility into that and all of the little happenings at the office as part of our like weekly dinners. So I'm curious, the friend that set you both up on a friend date, do you know why he did that? There were not a ton of aggressively social people at the University of Chicago. They sell t-shirts at the bookstore that say University of Chicago, where fun comes to die. And we were both unabashedly social, outgoing, interested in fashion, interested in stuff besides just econ and highly academic things that were happening at that school. And so I think he just sort of identified that we were a bit of a kindred spirit, especially in that particular environment. I love that. Yeah, I was just curious. So I think that for folks that are listening, set your friends up on friend dates and then also set your friends up that are single on real dates with romantic partners. Because I saw a TikTok about that and they're like, my single friends keep asking me like the creator. And she was like, you know what? I'm going to start asking them, why aren't you setting me up? Yeah, it's on you all. Yeah. You know what though? Because you really are making yourself vulnerable because if you set two friends up and they're like, you think that guy's hot enough for me? You're like, well, fuck. I don't know. Now I've offended you. I've had it happen and it's it's rough. Yeah. I've never been set up, but I've set up a couple of people and I have a pretty successful track record. Two marriages. Wow. Two setups and two marriages. Yeah. Oh, so you're two for two. Two for two. They're both still together. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. But you know what? A friend date, I think that's a safe space to be in. Oh, yeah. Friend date, super, super safe. That's exactly it. We learned, I can't remember which Mindy Kaling book it was from, Claire, but we learned the term the general at some point. And this is basically the adult pseudo friend, pseudo professional date where you're basically setting people up and saying, you two should talk. Feels like you're kindred spirits or there might be something here. Maybe this thing you're working on, she might have ideas about. And there's no set agenda and it's not this obvious, oh, there's a partnership or there's a business development opportunity. But we've had so many meetings that are ostensibly generals. It's like Hollywood terminology that have then, you know, years later turned into more. I'm a connector. Like I spent most of my time in my career as a recruiter. So I love connecting people that should know each other and belong together in that way. Now, when did you know it was time to go into business together? So we came up with this idea for Of A Kind in January of 2010. And it was an over an email exchange, 26 emails long. And then we decided to meet the next day between our offices and workshop it because we were just like so jazzed and really vibrating about it. And in the beginning, we really treated it like an extracurricular activity, which I think was helpful in allowing us to play like yes and about everything and just really snowball and let the idea grow. We wrote a business plan. We met with web developers. We interviewed potential designers who we might feature on the site. And the site, we took an online course, remember? It was an online marketing course. Oh yeah, we took an online course. We took an in-person course too. I think that by not telling ourselves on day one, we're starting a business or thinking about it that way, it gave us freedom to play and to evolve the idea and to probably take more creative risks than we might have if we had just been like, yes, we're doing this. So 
looking back at that moment when you were going back and forth and just like deciding whether you go into business together, what are some things that you wish you knew then that you now know? The question was never, should we go into business with each other? It was, should we start this business? Which is a really important question to ask. And I think we were uniquely lucky in that we had enough experience working on projects together because we'd done some extracurriculars together in college and we knew each other well enough that we just had a sense. I think now we know too much. And so you feel like you have to spend money on certain things that back then we were like, well, I guess we'll just be the models because we don't have enough money to pay models. And now it's like, you know, we wouldn't think of that for myriad reasons. But I think a healthy amount of naivete and just newness and inexperience can be really helpful. Yeah. I always say sometimes that ignorance is bliss. I saw an Instagram quote and it was like, the less I know, the happier I am. We were coming into retail and fashion and at a time when routines and structure had been really established, but it wasn't working anymore and a lot of things were changing. And so we just came up with what we thought made the most sense and did it. And in that moment, New York was having a major startup moment. So we had Foursquare and Rent the Runway and Birchbox and Warby Parker. Yeah. All these things were exploding in Bonobos. Yeah. And so when we said, you know, we're starting this business and it's online, everybody said, oh, you're a tech startup. And so we got kind of funneled into this process almost passively of like, talk to this VC and do this fundraising and do this pitch and go to this conference. And a lot of that was a really big waste of time. For one, we were never a venture business. We never should have been or could have been. And we were never going to be a billion dollar hockey stick growth business. And so we spent and wasted a lot of time chasing that because we thought that that was what we had to do. And to be fair to us, there also weren't a lot of other options. We were still in the shadow of a recession. There were no sort of in-between. It was like you either fund something yourself or you go out and get money. And we certainly couldn't fully fund it ourselves. And so, yeah, I think we learned a ton and that that process served us a lot. And at the same time, I wish we had known that just because somebody else is raising $30 million does not mean we will or that we have to or that it would serve us or that it's serving them necessarily. To use a relevant example here, we were fundraising at the same time that Nasty Gal was hitting a fever pitch and everybody was like, can you be the next Nasty Gal? And it was like, if only we could, you know, and that business did not survive as long as ours did. It's just not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just to understand that things aren't always what they seem on the outside. Not every business needs to be doing the same thing. I think as a culture, we're starting to see it now, but I think for a long time, there was this sense that raising a certain amount of money was a sign in itself of success. Yeah, definitely. I think that a lot of the merit that's attached to raising money and even like getting support from different VCs is being demystified and debunked. I think that a lot of that information had been held very closely to folks' chests for a long time. And we're seeing more and more not only documentaries, but like articles and Twitter threads and just so much. So many stories are now being shared about like the behind the scenes of these decision making. And we know essentially the bias that's riddled through that process. We saw this opportunity with Of A Kind to provide a platform where we could tell the stories and and sort of promote and sell the pieces of a lot of different young designers. And they wouldn't necessarily have to jump through all the hoops and have the luck and the connections and even the capital to get into these other bigger stores, many of which now also don't exist. Let's just say people are building businesses or wanting to build a business and they're listening in right now. And I think that, of course, coming out of a recession for sure at the time, which was 2009, I remember I graduated into a recession. It really shook down a bunch of different industries, specifically retail. What advice do you have for folks that are navigating a really challenging time right now, whether if they're at the beginning of their founder journey or if they're kind of like partway through it? 
how did you navigate that time? Because 2010, a lot of folks that started businesses then are not around anymore. So yeah. I think one thing is that you have to build the business that you believe in. You can't be creating the business that you think this investor wants you to build or this, you know, that would get the most press or even that you think would just work really well, but that you're not excited about and that you couldn't throw yourself into. I think there were many times that we were tempted to do things that were just not right for us. And sometimes we did them. You know, at a certain point, we added a marketplace aspect to of a kind that was not suited to our capabilities or our passions. Marketplaces are really operationally intensive. They require sophisticated technology and they require basically a willingness to close your eyes about consistencies with writing and photography and brand. And that was not who we were and it was not the business we were building. But we felt like, oh, that's the way to grow. That is the way to take this business to the next level. Ultimately, it was draining for us and not inspiring moving for us or the team. I keep hearing that advice of like, build a business that is in alignment with what it is that you want to see in the world, what it is that you want for your life. And I've had that exact same experience when I was building my consulting firm. I mirrored a lot of what I had experienced in the past. I'd actually worked with a competitor prior to starting my own company and just kind of used that as a template and it just wasn't working. And what's funny is things didn't work out for me at that company because I wasn't aligned with the way that they were working. So why would I go off and start my own business and use the same template? And it wasn't until I kind of threw out that template and started building and structuring my own approach that the business started to become successful. When we were making those decisions, we were also operating from a place of insecurity and a place of the business wasn't big enough or this wasn't happening fast enough or whatever it was. And I think that it is really hard to be excited while being insecure. (laughs) Hey, it's Victoria from Team Girlboss. We wanted to create a tangible, useful tool to help our community navigate whatever they might be feeling at work. Stuck on a problem, just made a huge mistake, buzzing with creativity, but unsure how to harness it? We'd like to introduce you to our workplace affirmation deck. There's a card in this deck that can guide your thoughts, soothe your worries, or encourage your dreams. Prop one on your desk, tuck it in a notebook, or even pass one along to a friend who could use it. Get yours today at girlboss.com slash affirmations. That's girlboss.com slash affirmations. You're listening to my conversation with Claire and Erica from A Thing or Two. Next up, we talk about the biggest lessons they learned from selling their small business to Bed Bath & Beyond. So we've talked a lot about your professional backgrounds and where you started, and I want to explore of a kind. You've mentioned it a couple of times already. You both founded it together, and it was an online marketplace that sold limited edition items, including jewelry from emerging designers. And you actually went on to sell it to Bed Bath & Beyond. I'm curious, what was the biggest lesson you learned from that process? You have a good one for this, Claire. We preface this a little bit, but we were never like the golden child of the startup business scene in our cohort, I will say. But we had a really good reputation among the people who knew us. People knew that we were smart and hardworking and scrappy. And so when it came time to sell the business and we had reached out to a number of people who had just been supporters of us and advisors to us along the way, there was this one guy who said to us, reach out to people who know you and know your reputation because 
that's what's going to sell the business. It's not going to be the numbers. It's not going to be the brand you've built. It's going to be the people who really know you, who've seen what you've done, who know how scrappy and smart you are. It's not going to be like Bloomingdale's, right? And at the time that made sense and it was really well-meaning advice, but Avery Wheat did not know Bed Bath & Beyond (laughs) before this and they did not know us. And it took us two meetings basically to sell them the business. And I think what in retrospect, was happening was both he and to an extent we really underestimated our ability to convey our value in a conversation and for people to like have a conversation with us and realize, oh, they've built something really special and it's a really solid business and they're smart and they and their business could be really valuable to us and our business. And particularly in the case of Bed Bath & Beyond, which was kind of a perfect fit for us because it was such an odd fit because they just had no experience in storytelling. They had no experience in millennial sort of design-minded customers and we could bring that to them. And that's the value that they saw in us. That was a moment where it was like, I remember he gave us that advice and we really took it to heart. And we were like, totally, he really has our best interests at heart. And he did, but he was wrong. I love those moments where what feels like the impossible happens in our lives and to hear two meetings. So just two meetings. We met two people in a boardroom in New York, and then they set up a meeting at a boardroom in New Jersey at the Bed Bath & Beyond headquarters with the whole executive team. So who reached out to Bed Bath & Beyond? We had a general. We had a general with a banker to get advice about this because we didn't know how to sell a business. We'd never done this before. My husband met this banker at a lefty econ blog meetup years prior, and he was like, I think that this guy would have advice to give to you. So he set us up on a general and that was sort of it. And then a few weeks later, this banker called and was like, I just had a conversation with Bed Bath & Beyond about another business. But we, while I had them on the phone, I mentioned you guys, would you want a meeting? Amazing. And he said, they're sort of similar to Etsy, which, you know, sure. And so that piqued their interest enough for them to come to New York and meet with us. I think we were able to put together a really good pitch and say, you know, here's why we could be valuable. And we were having conversations with a lot of other people who honestly seemed way more obvious fits. And this really worked out, I think, for the best. I don't know if you can share this, but were you profitable at the time when you were having those conversations with Bed Bath & Beyond? We were typically cash flow positive. We weren't profitable in the sense that, but yeah, we were cash flow positive. So after 10 years of operating, started in 2010, Bed Bath & Beyond shut down of a kind. I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on what transpired and how did this all kind of come to be? So in late 2019, Bed Bath & Beyond was going through a big internal shift. They had activist investors involved. There were leadership changes. There was just like a lot of turmoil. Anybody who's followed any of that news recently would know that there's still a lot of turmoil. During that, they shut down of a kind and some other businesses that they had purchased or started. And I think one of the hard things for us during that time was that because it's a public company, there was news coverage of this kind of stuff, that there were activist investors, that there was internal turmoil. It was hard to have a team and to know that they were reading these stories, but that we didn't have any insider information to offer anyone, of course. And so when people would ask, what is the future of this company? We knew exactly as much as they did. And I think coming from a place of having run the business independently for five years, that was a hard place to be in where you just felt like I have no control over this, nor do I even have intel. (laughs) In the podcast that I listened to, what kind of stood up to me the most is that you were talking about the business being shut down and you both said that you were glad it wasn't your decision. That really stuck with me. And I think that a lot of folks listening that either 
own their own business or have evolved out of a business that they started would probably really connect with that. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on like why you felt that way. It's funny because when you said, you know, what advice would you give people who are struggling right now in this way? One of my thoughts was like one piece of advice is it's okay to shut it down. It's okay to stop. Just because you started a business doesn't mean you have to keep it going forever. And that is one of the things we came up against really early on with of a kind. We started of a kind because we loved the idea and we thought it sounded fun. And very quickly after that, people were like, well, what's your year over year revenue growth and what's your exit plan? And we were like, Oh, I didn't realize every single business was subject to being on that same path. You grow, 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 grow forever. And then you keep growing more. And the second you stop, it's over, it's bad or something's gone wrong. And I don't think businesses are supposed to live forever or grow forever. Nothing lives forever. People, plants, animals, you get older and you, you move on. When Avakind shut down, we got more than a couple of emails from other people who ran their own businesses, a lot of designers, basically asking for permission to stop running their businesses to close shop. And I do think it's really hard for people to make that leap. And especially I think when people have their own identities tied up in it, let alone people who have their names tied up in a business, it can be very hard to say this thing is stopping. And I think people think of it as failure. We have to start reframing that, that just because something ends doesn't mean it's a failure. I think we're starting to have that conversation about relationships, of watching people reframe divorce and saying, I had a great relationship for 10 years. It stopped being great. And so we ended it. But that doesn't mean I didn't have a great relationship for 10 years. Yeah, totally. My company name is Bloom. And we always say that nothing in nature blooms all year long. And I think about endings a lot. And I think that endings can oftentimes lead to new, exciting beginnings. And I've seen a lot of folks becoming more open about celebrating the end of different chapters. And I am totally aligned with that. But also, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about the book that you wrote. I love the name Work Wife. And just really quickly, what inspires you to write a book together? So Work Wife is a book about how female friendships power successful businesses. And really, it grew out of this idea that having worked together for how long, Claire? Nine years by the time the book came out, we had just realized how special our relationship was, but then looked around and saw that there were so many other people who had taken this road too and had formed these really special and unique professional and personal bonds and wanted to dive into that and figure out what made those relationships work. The impetus was figuring out what made us work too. We had been approached to write a book since starting the business because again, startups were a very hot topic at this during this era. And people had pitched us on various sort of angles and nothing felt interesting to us. But the one thing that we had known because we'd gotten this feedback and experienced ourselves was that our relationship and our partnership and our friendship was really special and unique at the lowest points of the business when we thought, oh my God, is this going to work out? And do we have to shut it down? The one thing that ever felt certain and sure was our relationship, our partnership, and that we wanted to continue working together, whatever that looked like. And when we came up with the idea for the book, it was like this realization that there was something inherent in female friendship that's sort of intrinsic to a lot of female friendships that made a lot of sense in a business environment. And that was sort of different from what you think of as traditional business environments. Like we have always brought some amount of our personal lives to our work in a way that's really productive. There were all these other startups that were started by duos of women. You had Birchbox and Rent the Runway and The Skim. So the book explores that and just sort of encourages this taking these sort of tenets of female friendship, this vulnerability, this like really mutually supportive cheerleading and bringing it to the office, whether you are a man or a woman, whether you're starting a business or, you know, you're a junior. As human beings, we bring our lived experiences with us everywhere we go, right? 
And it doesn't matter whether you're within a professional environment or just among friends and family members. If you're going through a life thing, like a breakup or a divorce, or you're having a baby, all those things influence the way that you're showing up at work. So I love that you both have gone through these waves together. Talk to us a little bit about a thing or two. So a thing or two is a podcast and a newsletter and an Instagram account and, you know, all the things. Um, but it's it's mainly a, a podcast and a series of newsletters that grew out of our original business of a kind. While we were running of a kind, we used to publish a newsletter every Monday that just was 10 things we were doing. And it was discoveries across the board, an app we loved, a recipe we loved, a beauty product we were excited about. And that spawned a podcast that we also did once a week. And so when we shut down of a kind, those were sort of the two things we kept going under a different name. And it's really become this amazing place for us. We always say like, bring attention to the things we think more people should know about, which has always been at the core of everything we do is just like, we love this thing. We are professional enthusiasts and how can we share it with a bigger audience? I was doing a bunch of research. I love how you've put so much emphasis on amplifying other businesses and other products. Because I think that sometimes you just simply don't know what we don't know. And you're doing the hard work of really helping to put some of these really fantastic brands and products in front of people. But with that said, there's this other overarching conversation around de-influencing that's been happening a lot lately. Curious, as we come to the end of our conversation, what are your thoughts on de-influencing as a trend right now? It's interesting to see. I think I like that it's happening in a broader context. I think it's not something that I personally feel the need to participate in. I think for Claire and I, we've always just been like, let's just like yell about the things we love and try to kind of drown out the things we don't. Well, and I think you and I have been lucky in that we have never had, our income has never been fully dependent on being an influencer. And I think that business model makes it really hard for audiences to distinguish what do people actually really like and what has a really high affiliate fee, right? And that is no fault of the influencers. That's just how things are. But I think because we have always done things a little bit differently, people know if we are talking about something, it's because we really love it. And if we're not talking about it, we either haven't tried it or we didn't think it was that great. And I think that's been our approach. And we've been fortunate to not be in that position where we feel like we have to promote stuff we don't like. And what I've noticed about both of you as well, especially with a thing or two, is that you're amplifying products and brands and just even conversations with intention. I'm curious to learn about what your definition of success is. We were talking about this recently. We were talking about mattress companies and somebody said, oh, it's like Casper, but successful. And there's all these companies that got really big and by VC standards or just like by business people standards were not successful, right? Because like they raised too much money or like they didn't meet the goals, the sort of metrics that were set based on the amount of money they raised or whatever it is, or they didn't sell or exit. I don't know. These companies were wildly successful by like any layperson's metrics. They made a huge impact. They shifted the market. They shifted the way we think about a category. The founders went on to be able to do like really cool things because they did this huge thing. And Glossy is another great example where you're like, and I think that business is in a different place now where it is doing well again. But at some point, everybody was sort of like writing the stories about how Glossy didn't live up to its potential. And it's like, I can tell you if I had started that business, I would feel like a huge success, even if it shut down tomorrow and never paid back an investor a dime. Absolutely. I like fell onto a quote on the internet the other day that I feel like does a really good job of encapsulating something I could definitely never have articulated. It's a Toni Morrison quote. So for me, success is not a public thing. It's a private thing. It's when you have fewer and fewer regrets. And I really liked that it's when you have fewer and fewer regrets bit. 
And I think it helped validate for me leaning into certain decisions that I feel like are risky or that I think are a little bit out of character for me, where I'm like, why do I feel compelled to take this risk? Why do I want to dive into this thing? Why do I feel better working for myself than for someone else? And I think it is rooted in this, I don't want the regrets. I don't want to feel like I didn't do the things because I was scared. I love that quote. Okay, so we're coming to the end of our conversation. And I really just want to thank you both for being so vulnerable and sharing so much with us today. We do a little segment at the end of each conversation called In or Out, and it's our opportunity just to kind of do a bit of a gut check to understand what's in for you, what's out. So I'm going to just get right into it. If you feel necessary to share a little bit of context, you're more than welcome to. But first and foremost, In or Out, influencing. Mm, oof. I just think it's always going to exist in one way or another. The term is out, the like project of it is in. <laughs> This is like not necessarily in or out. It's more so just like which one, influencer or creator? Do we have to choose? <laughs> <laughs> they both are, they're both hard. Well, and I'm like, did we need to come up? I mean, creators are just, they're just artists, right? Like I think of creators as TikTokers because I think that TikTok has a creator's fund. And so that term has stuck in my head, but I'm like, those are filmmakers making very short films. Yeah. Artists. Yeah. Anything that's just like conspicuous consumption and quantity based is out. Yeah. Checking emails first thing in the morning. I guess out. I mean, you shouldn't. I think we all know it's not great <laughs> for our mental health. Like you should be doing Wordle. That is what Wordle is for. And I think this will be an easy one for both of you, but going into business with a friend. Oh, and for sure. If it's the right friend. Awesome. Okay. Well, Claire, Erica, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. I really appreciate it. And I know folks listening learned a lot. And for folks that are listening, if you have been thinking about starting a business with a friend, this is your sign to do it. Thank you so much for having us, Avery. This was wonderful. It was a delight. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening to my chat with Claire and Erica. They are proof that having a ride or die friend in your corner throughout your career makes all of the difference. Keep your reviews and comments coming. It makes my day to read them. As always, this podcast is produced by Liz Goober and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming. Hi, I'm Claire. And I'm Erica. We're the hosts of A Thing or Two. We are professional enthusiasts constantly on the hunt for the products, books, and trends that should be on your radar. And we share them with you every Monday, whether it's marinated olive oil that we're putting on everything, a deep dive on pillows, or the fact that suddenly gas stoves are on everyone's outlift for 2023. We challenge the friends we invite on the show to bring their own favorite thingies too. Like when Ellen Van Dusen spilled about the IG account that's keeping her current with the youths. We also love a gift guide. We take listener questions, dear Abby style, and tell you what to get your vegan minimalist coworker or your sister-in-law who loves to hunt. So be sure to listen and follow a thing or two with Claire and Erica wherever you listen to podcasts.